leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Earlier this month, the National Academy of Sciences and the National Academy of Medicine issued a report that considered the scientific, ethical, and governance issues surrounding human genome editing. The report comes as new gene editing technologies have reduced the cost and increased the ease of manipulating the human genome. We spoke to Alto Charo, co-chair of the study committee that wrote the report and professor of law and bioethics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, about the study the potential for the science, and where the committee thought limits should be imposed. We had some technical difficulties on this recording and apologize for the sound quality. Alto, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. We're going to talk about gene editing, the ethical considerations, and the recent report from the National Academy of Sciences Committee that you co-chaired The report comes in the face of new gene editing technologies that have made it easier to manipulate genes. What was the committee asked to consider in doing the report? The committee was given a statement of tasks that had a number of items on it. Uh, First and foremost, to evaluate where the science was going, because it is moving very rapidly. What was unsafe two years ago might be safe today or tomorrow. The second was to look specifically at some of the ethical issues about excuses in both uh, actually, in laboratory work, in somatic treatment, as well as in heritable germline editing. And then to look at whether or not we have the regulatory apparatus in place and the ethical norms in existence to manage it responsibly, both here and in other countries. I think of the development of recombinant DNA technology that led to the Asilomar Conference, and in more recent years, the debates over stem cell science. Where would you place new gene editing technology in these discussions? Is this an extension of the ethical debates that have been ongoing since the early days of biotechnology, or does this represent anything that is fundamentally new in the discussion? I think the technology is uh, simply the next step in our ability to manipulate genetic material, and it includes not just the manipulation of genetic sequences, but also manipulation of epigenetic markers. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, mitochondrial DNA and nuclear DNA of the genetic process. And we've seen, starting with the Silmar, uh, the earliest stages of competent DNA, uh, an assumption that it would be unsafe and unwise to do this in any way that was heritable in the human genome. But then we had a series of, uh, developments in the 1980s and 90s around reproductive technology, all aimed at trying to bring healthy children into the world. 
is clear citation genetic diagnosis to prenatal diagnosis. And uh, that, I think, is part of what set up what has happened more recently. Uh, that is, in the U.S., and particularly in the United Kingdom, a look at trying to replace uh, mutated mitochondrial DNA with healthy mitochondrial DNA through uh, donor mitochondria. The so-called free parent child is really just two maternal mitochondria lines and uh, one maternal sperm line. And that, in turn, led to the next step, which is what our study did, and that is looking at alteration in sequences in nuclear DNA. So uh, while our recommendation to be cautious but not to absolutely prohibit heritable changes is a break from previous thinking. It is also simply the next incremental step in something that's been working its way for 40 years. The report, we, we should note, focused only on human applications of gene editing technology. In that regard, how is the technology used today? How far have we come? Uh, you know, it's actually, uh, uh, you, you know, it's, going to probably have, in the near term, some of its most important applications in agriculture. Uh, we're already seeing it being used to try and uh, develop uh, dehorned cattle. Uh, we will probably see it being used in other animals that are designed for both, um, uh, you know, the, the applications in a medicine are sure, are, are sure to be coming, particularly in the somatic uh, intervention area. We've got a few examples already. Uh, of clinical trials that are going to be started or are started. But the bigger area for near-term application will probably be agriculture. The editing of plants uh, so that they are pest-resistant or so that they have different and better nutritional content uh, or can be grown in areas of excessive water or too little water due to climate change. Uh, and we're also beginning to see some interest in using it in animals, for example, in dehorning cattle because they don't injure themselves when they're being uh, raised on mass. Uh, there are some more whimsical thoughts, such as bringing back a stick species, but these are things, all three of them, that have significant ecosystem implications that have to be considered before one moves down the road to making those kinds of changes. In preparing this report, you were asked to consider not only what we're capable of doing with this technology today, but what we might have the potential to do in, in the future. What kinds of applications did you think about in terms of thinking through the potential uses? Um, we looked at uh, several different applications in the area of somatic interventions where we saw a lot of possibilities. Uh, for example, we saw that uh, already we're beginning to understand how we might be able to develop a greater degree of resistance to certain kinds of diseases like Alzheimer's and HIV infections. And uh, that would be something that's very much akin to what we now do with vaccines, except it would be done with gene editing. And clearly we were beginning to see more possibilities for uh, actual treatment of diseases that have already manifest, such as the work that's begun on muscular dystrophy and sickle cell anemia, where cells are taken from the body treated, edited, and then reintroduced. Further down the line, because there are more technical challenges, it's something that may strike people as uh, resembling uh, what Dr. Beverly Crusher does on Star Trek Next Generation. She would just uh, take a so-called hypospray and she would 
squirt something into people and suddenly their tissues and organs would regenerate. Well, that is something that we can try to think about for the future. Inserting something in the body that will actually trigger an editing process that in turn would help to uh, heal or regenerate damaged tissues and organs. It has a lot of technical challenges. Getting whatever it is you're going to insert into the right place, having it target the right tissues, having it target them only enough and not too much. These are all technical challenges that face us in the future, but it is something we can imagine. With uh, heritable kinds of changes, which are still way in the future, um, what we could imagine was that if the research got there, and if all the other criteria we laid out were met, that is, we're talking about serious conditions, talking about rigorous regulatory systems, we could imagine that some serious genetic disorders that begin with a particular mutation could be corrected even before conception by growing sperm and eggs that had been edited themselves to get rid of the mutated form of the gene and insert a normal, typical gene instead. So this would mean you don't edit embryos, you actually are creating damage from those cells that are then uh, transformed using induced very potent uh, stem cell technology, which is then edited, and then the edited stem cells are used to grow precursors to damage. Uh, and this would allow you to actually make sure every embryo that is then made with these sperm and eggs is an embryo made free of this mutation that you're trying to correct. And there are thousands of different genetic disorders that are caused by these kinds of mutations. Most of them are fairly rare, but collectively they account for a very large number of people. The report distinguishes between editing somatic cells for the treatment and prevention of disease and disability and germline editing that can alter the genetic material that is passed down from one generation to the next. With regards to somatic cell editing, which only affects the individual patient, what did the committee recommend? We recommended that uh, we continue to use the existing regulatory apparatus that covers gene therapy research because it's already in place and it is there to deal with exactly these kinds of issues. How well do we understand what we're going to be doing? How well can we predict any adverse events? And how well do we understand how stable the change is that we're planning to make? Um, we also, however, recognize that the CRISPR-Cas9 system in particular is a fairly uh, easy and efficient system as compared to earlier gene editing systems like zinc fingers and uh, challenge. And as a result, a wider range of applications may occur, and it invites consideration of so-called enhancement uses. And we were able to identify just a couple of them. So in the area of muscular dystrophy, we can identify a somatic treatment where you try and increase the muscle capacity of a child whose muscle has been um, uh, damaged through muscular dystrophy. But the same technology in some treatment might theoretically be available to people of normal strength who want to be stronger. And we said we really shouldn't go down that road right now. For one thing, the benefits of this kind of marginal enhancement certainly can't outweigh the risks of the technology at this stage. And second, we need to have a much larger uh, conversation about uh, the meaning of enhancement and how we're going to value that benefit. Uh, because it's a conversation that's complicated. It, it changes depending on whether you're in a competitive sports environment or you're in a general environment where we enhance ourselves all the time with surgery and with education and whatever. 
But we also noticed something that I think is probably not been noticed often. And that is that in most cases, the technologies that are developed for somatic treatment of disease will not be usable for so-called enhancement because they're so specific. And each one of these gene-edited constructs that have to be approved separately, and each one is so different that it would be useful for treating the disease if you have that genetic defect, but it wouldn't do anything for you if you didn't have the defect. So some of the fears about where somatic interventions might go may be calmed as people realize the technology with regards to germline editing, the types of issues that come up become a lot murkier. Can you explain what some of those issues are and why it's an area that's so much dicier? Well, germline editing is dicey for several reasons. Uh, at the most practical level, it's dicey because it is something where both the, both the benefits and the risks are theoretically going to be multiplied if things are going to reverberate down the generation, not just one person affected, it's many. So the risks are magnified, so are the benefits. Uh, but it simply makes it harder to get a handle on what that risk-benefit balance really looks like. Second, in order to get that information, you really need to be tracking what happens over a very long period of time, and perhaps even across multiple generations. And you're not used to having experiments that do that. We have some in the area of reproductive technologies, but we don't have a lot. So that's another kind of challenge to the research protocol needed to make this, uh, you know, a, a technique that could be responsibly investigated in years. Um, in addition, there are people who have concerns that go beyond these concerns about safety and efficacy, and their concerns are really focused on something more almost spiritual or global. Uh, they are concerned that it is going to create some degree of pressure on people to avoid any possibility of the birth of a child who's got an otherwise correctable genetic uh, problem. Uh, but again, we've seen this before when it came to transplantation genetic diagnosis and prenatal diagnosis. And what we have seen is that even as those technologies have been adopted by many people, they are not universal. And uh, at the same time that technologies have moved into medicine, we've seen a parallel move for greater and greater legal and cultural acceptance of the equality of people with disabilities. So uh, we don't have evidence that making the medical technology available comes at the social cost of those who do have disabilities at birth or frankly at any time in life. Most of us at some point will have some kind of disability. A second concern is really more about the notion that there's some natural limit to how much humans can control their own human reproduction. Which uh, again, kind of thing that has come up every time we've had a reproductive technology, starting with birth control and moving to uh, prenatal diagnosis and uh, in vitro fertilization. And every time people have worried that somehow it is taking over the job that could be left to nature or creator, or that it'll change our attitude about our children. We've not actually seen such terrible things happen in terms of how we view our children, but it is an enjoying way. What did the committee recommend with regards to germline editing? We recommended that this is something that is no longer viewed as unthinkable. Instead, it is something that deserves serious thought, and it might be permissible. Not obligatory, but permissible. If a very long and rather stringent set of conditions could be met. One, and the most important first one is a lot more science on the safety and efficacy of this in animal models. 
The second is a plan to take what is an understood genetic defect that strongly predisposes or causes a known disease uh, and correct that. Not something frivolous, but something serious and well understood. And to then edit that particular genetic sequence into something that is already present and prevalent in the population and that we know is associated with good health and without adverse events. But we really know what we're doing. We're correcting a problem that we understand and we're only correcting it to the point of restoring ordinary health. We also said it needs extremely tight regulation over who gets to do this and over the kind of risk-benefit analysis and oversight monitoring over time that must be done in order to confirm that the risks and benefits are what we predicted and that there needs to be an awful lot of public engagement with this entire process so that people are given an opportunity to talk about what they think of as being important risks and important benefits when we're deciding which areas of medicine to pursue them. One of the other issues that comes up with a technology like this is the issue of equitability. How do we assure equitable access to this technology? Is it based on need, or will it be whoever can afford it will be the ones to, to benefit from it? I think it's a crucial problem, but it's a problem that transcends you know, evidence. It's a problem of our health care system entirely, and in fact, it's a problem of all of our social services entirely. That is, how do we ensure equitable access to education, to nutrition, to exercise, all of which can promote good health, as well as to medical care, to treat problems once they've arisen, in general, ranging from simple infection to cancer, and then further down the road to these more euphoristic or exotic areas of medicine. Um, we don't have the ability in our community sports to take that head off, because it's a problem that is so large and is so tied into the general social structure of public services in the United States that it is simply not possible for us to solve it in this one little area uh, without taking on the entire system. Uh, that said, it is always our goal that the benefits and burdens be equitably distributed. And so at a minimum, when you start with this, what you do is you make sure that whatever research you're doing is not done on one group that bears all the risks, so that you can develop a therapy that is eventually approved and only made available to an entirely different group of people. So one thing we did focus on is making sure that at least in this research stage, the benefits and the burdens are equitably distributed. That's the stage where we have more control. What weight does the report carry? How, how does it translate into policy? What are the next steps? Uh, the report is advisory only. And it's advisory to our sponsors, which included some government agencies, some private funders, uh, and it is also out there now as a, um, a, a preliminary set of recommendations for public debate. Uh, we're going to see a number of other national level commissions and committees discuss these very same issues. Some of them have already begun to put out policy statements, France, Germany, the Netherlands, we're going to have another uh, international summit uh, in China, probably the end of this year, that will bring together uh, people from all over the world to discuss where the science is then and what their countries are doing about this scientifically or politically, and to discuss again what kind of progress do we see? Are we seeing the kinds of um, regulatory approaches and ethical norms that are needed to move this forward responsibly, or do we have problems in that area? Uh, and I don't think this report will be the end. I think 
Alto Charo, co-chair of the study committee that wrote the Human Genome Editing Report and professor of law and bioethics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Alto, thanks so much for your time today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.